Thanks for joining us for ERCX Chats. In this episode, ERC's Chief Strategy Officer, Stephanie Todd, discusses the opportunities and challenges of building CX teams at hypergrowth companies. Our special guest is Dickie Smith, VP of Membership Services at Whoop. Hey Dickie, thanks for joining us today on ERCX Chats. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your background? You know, how did you find your way into customer experience? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I, for the most part of my career, I haven't been a customer experience professional. I, I came to it back in 2014 when I joined Uber. Um, prior to that, I'd been a, a, I'd been a management consultant and a bit of a, a general athlete, so to speak. But I was, I was really attracted to the company um, at Uber rather than the role. But it's something that I very quickly, I guess, developed a passion for, um, you know, it was easy to do at Uber, I guess, because back then Uber was a very, very, very hot topic, but also a very virtual company. Like the, the physical experience was always between the rider um, and the driver partner. And so there wasn't a ton of interaction with Uber. So when that, when it did happen, it came into my team and I was like super excited to be a part of that. And it made, made the stakes really important to get it right. Yeah. Sounds good. I know it's something where I always joke, my kids will say, what is it that you do, mom? Right. And I always laugh because we talk about customer care or whatever. Um, they still don't fully understand. It's like this very convoluted thing. Right. Um, but it's kind of funny because, you know, as kids, you're like, oh, I want to be an astronaut or all yeah. these other things. Not I want to work in customer care. So yeah. it's kind of funny to hear how everyone gets there. Um, so you're the first employee for Uber support in EMEA. Um, can you tell us what it was like from a you know, just being at Uber in 2014, like everyone now in 2020 thinks of Uber so differently, but 2014 being the first employee in EMEA was probably 100% different. Sure. So, so, I mean, obviously the the Uber business in EMEA was, you know, it wasn't huge by any means at the time. It was reasonably sized, but support was the job that everybody did rather than one person did. So there were no real support professionals. So we'd have like, a, we'd have a rider team, whose job during the day was signing up riders would have a driver team whose job during the day was to, to sign up drivers. And then evenings and weekends was answering all the tickets and doing all the sport interactions. Um, so it was clearly not very scalable. I, I always joke that I was probably the most popular hire of 2014 because I was the guy that was ostensibly supposed to take all the tickets away. Um, <laughs> it didn't happen immediately, but it was, it was a lovely welcome to, to come into. Um, so yeah, we, we, we had a real challenge ahead of us of how do we build a structure? How do we, how do we get something that's a little bit more scalable? Um, but at the same time, one of the things that worked really well was that because everybody in Uber were doing support tickets, everybody was really close to our customers. Everybody really understood what issues were and how issues were surfacing up in the product. And, you know, that sort of iteration loop of, you know, break fix was incredibly quick. So the challenge that I had was, well, how do you preserve that? You know, how do you sort of give people back their evenings and weekends, but sort of preserve that feedback loop? So it was a super interesting challenge to have, I guess. How many did you have on the team when you started to when you left? And what did that look like in comparison? If I, if I was sort of supported Uber as a whole, there was probably less than 100 globally. We'd be, we were spinning up a little bit of a work from home uh, model even back in 2014 um, to, to handle support requests in the US. Outside of the US, 
um, I don't think we were convinced that that was necessarily the way to go. And so we started to develop partnerships with um, outsourcers to try and get a bit of capacity um, into the system. But it was, there was a lot of work that we had to do to sort of triage what was most important, what was most pressing, what do we handle internally, what do we handle externally, how do we sort of build that structure? That's a constant conversation, I guess, at Uber, but, you know, it's it's now sort of scaled up to, you know, we have tens of thousands of support professionals um, working with us and for us worldwide. It's a huge operation. Um, but yeah, it started from, it started from really just a handful of people, right? In a mayor, I, I, my first two hires were, two agents that could sit next to me and just help me with volume um, because they helped you with all those tickets that you were yeah, because I was doing tickets. I was, I was, I was like, I w- one of my, one of my uh, favorite uh, parts of being part of the, the senior leadership at Uber when I left was I had the highest ticket count of the entire senior leadership team because I did my time. I, I crushed those, I crushed those tickets too. Um, Hopefully and, you have a trophy or something or something to signify that. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I printed off a few certificates for myself, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, recognition is always nice. Um, but, you know, so we were kind of trying to solve two problems at the same time, though, because the problem, the problem in front of us was we've got a ton of volume that we just need to we need to solve for. We've got a bunch of riders that we need to help. We've got a bunch of drivers that we need to help, we, you know. The, the, the growth of the business is constant. And there's this huge problem that we need to solve now. And the temptation is always to throw bodies at it. Um, and honestly, that's kind of what we had to do. We, we threw bodies at that problem. But at the same time as solving that problem, the problem in front of us, you know, the, the smart money solves the problem that's coming as well. And you start to build that infrastructure um, for the future. And doing those two things in tandem was, was really challenging but we managed to hire a, a pretty rock star team um, in the early days, many of whom are still at Uber. Um, and uh, yeah, we were, able to, we were able to build something that I think we were quite proud of um, in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would assume based on the growth and the support and you know, even just seeing now Uber, I have one app instead of multiple apps, right? So I don't have my Eater app. I also have my, I have my Rider and Eater all together. So even just seeing that, from a customer perspective, if you're not in this space, you would think it's so simple. Yeah. But when you actually look at the back end of systems and people and technology, there's just so much more that goes into it. So the undertaking of that task is probably an ex- exorbitant amount of time that yeah. I think people just don't realize. And I think, you, you know, you bring up a great point with Uber Eats. Like the model that we use for Uber Eats has iterated several times. You know, it started off with, Prius is driving around the city with a bunch of burritos being kept warm in the back um, to, to, the, to the marketplace model that we have now. But of course, from a support perspective, now we have a three-sided marketplace that we have to support with restaurants and couriers and eaters. So everything has to change again. Um, so super interesting challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then throw COVID on top of it in 2020. And I'm sure that didn't pose any new challenges to the capacity or planning or anything. So yeah, it certainly uh, it certainly accelerated some investments in the uh, Uber Eats business. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, what strategies did you implement to handle some of that growth? Like, were there certain things that you just really had to hold on to to make sure you know as you're adding you know two agents or things over time? Like, what did you have to put in place to make sure that that grew with the business as you know it's a very unknown space? 
as I said, there was this there was this issue of solving two problems at once. There was the issue of solving the problem for today, solving the problem for the future. So what did that look like? Um, it meant that we had to um, build a lot more systems, tooling, forecasting, um, relationships with technology providers, with outsourcing providers, um, at the same time as literally just sort of getting warm bodies into a room, answering contacts. Um, but there was also a bunch of intangible stuff that we had to manage as well around culture. What was the voice of Uber at the time? Like, how do we make sure that we, you know, in this melee of change and growth, how do we preserve that humble and helpful voice of Uber to our customer? Um, but equally, we're starting to now pull support contacts away from the uh, the other parts of operations of Uber. So, so how do we now translate that voice of the customer back into Uber in a scalable, sustainable way? That was a real challenge, and it, you know, you know, as our as support operations grow, I think it, it continues to be uh, a challenge. Um, but it was uh, it was interesting problems to solve, especially given the iteration of change that the product went through, especially during that time. So if you could rewind the clocks to when you first started there in 2014, building that team from scratch, what would you have done differently? It's a good question, but sometimes I do think it's dangerous to think like that because <laughs> I think part of the success was the naivety that some of us had um, at the time where you know we, we, didn't really, we didn't really see the scale of these challenges uh, in front of us. And it allows you that it allows you to keep going. It allows you to sort of keep on marching. Um, I think one of the things that I, I I really did learn and appreciate over my time it was mainly it was probably during 2018 when Uber was gearing up through uh, for for IPO. Um, we intentionally brought a lot more rigor and accountability uh, into our processes, planning, reporting, etc. And I remember some of that felt antithetical at the time to the culture that we had, like this culture of innovation and, you know, fast pivoting and like an allergy to bureaucracy, if, if you like. But actually, with hindsight, it probably served us really well in better understanding our business, better understanding our customers, um, which I think allowed us to be innovative and reactive in more meaningful ways for our customers. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So and when you talk about the innovation in different ways, what kind of technologies were you using or what other strategies did you have when you're trying to throw bodies at it, but you're also trying to make sure, like I'm assuming there's also, as much as it's an entrepreneurial organization, I'm sure there were some potential disconnects between the EMEA group and the US group, right? My, my last job at, at Uber was to start to build a, a more global service organization. And, and that's not because we'd built something bad in the regions. Actually, we built four fantastic businesses in the regions, but there were four very different businesses in the regions. So, you know, upping those ways of, you know, comparing, contrasting about how we manage our customers, you know, thinking about how we communicate um, and getting technology in to support some of that was, was a useful forcing function. We actually, um, we started to build some of our own tech platforms um, to manage our support operations, as I think most big tech companies eventually tend to want to do. 
Uh, and I think that was a that was a terrific forcing function um, for us to start to harmonize and be a little bit more consistent and, and thoughtful about how we manage our operations. Kind of jumping in now to your new role you're in, right? You're at Whoop, and not everyone knows about Whoop. It's you know um, something that is another hyper growth company. And if no one's heard about it now, absolutely after they hear from Dickie, you know, and hear the chat, whatever, they're you know going to go out and purchase Whoop. I'm sure um, today. But you know, thinking about it, you know, you guys are partners with huge sports organizations. You know, Kevin Durant, Larry Fitzgerald, you know, Patrick Mahomes, Rory McElroy, like such a big group of people who really led, like lead you guys to be so credible in the space. But can you just talk a little bit more about Whoop and like overall from a company standpoint? Sure. So obviously we're really, we're really proud of some of the, um, some of the very public partnerships uh, that we have. And I think it really speaks to, uh, to the value of the product that these people, um, you know, are, are keen and willing to, to, to be attached to it. Um, but just to sort of take it a couple of steps back, Whoop is, Whoop's a, it's a, basically, it's a 24 seven fitness tracker um, and a, a health monitor. And it provides really tangible and meaningful personalized feedback, which um, allows you to sort of really understand some of the hidden messages that your body is telling you. And they do it through key metrics like heart rate variability, resting heart rates, respiratory rates, and also some, um, I think, best in the best in the business, um, sleep staging. Um, and it's it's a product that I was a user and fan of well before I joined the company. Um, and it, in fact, is why I was excited to join the company, because it's I know sort of how useful I found it in my personal life. Um, so I knew that the, I knew that the team were onto something special and you know, as with Uber, I saw something exciting and I wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think too, the best customer care teams are built on people who are passionate about that experience of the customer themselves. Absolutely. So Whoop is lucky to have you because, you know, you also sought them out as some, you know, something you're super excited and engaged with as a customer. So, And I think you see that up and down throughout our membership services organization at Whoop. Like we're lucky that we've got really engaged talented frontline uh, representatives that, you know, when they can chat to a member that is as excited about the product as they are, like you can create some pretty, pretty magical experiences. So yeah, we're very lucky to have that throughout the organization. Yeah, no kidding. So when you talk about the fitness tracker, you talked a little bit about it, but what other like product services does it offer? What value are the customers seeing out of that? Sure. So um, our members pay uh, a monthly subscription. Um, and for that, they get the 24 seven um, health monitoring across sleep, uh, recovery, strain, which is physical cardiovascular exertion over the day. Um, the membership includes free hardware. So you get the Whoop Strap uh, 3.0. Um, uh, you get the coaching platform designed to um, optimize behavior and you get to be part of a community of really high performers. Uh, and, you know, this sort of community stuff is is something that we certainly want to um we want to lean into in the coming year um and i think you know i i know what the i know what impact it's had on me but we've also you know we've got some studies out there that show you know after a year on whoop um, members are sleeping more they're having more consistent sleep more useful sleep uh, improved physiologic physiology enhanced physical performance and people are making meaningful lifestyle changes because of it and um 
yeah, it's it is a it's for me certainly, and I think for many of other other members, it's been a very powerful product. Indeed. Yeah. So, how long have you been a customer of Loop before you even started? So, since the start of this year. Um, so, at the start of the year, at start of twenty twenty, um, I um, got my Loop strap. Having like, and the reason I got it was because a lot of my friends were also evangelizing the product. I was a little bit skeptical. I, you know, I allowed them to give me the pitch and then I tried it mm. and I was like, wow, this is, this is really helpful. And of course now I'm, um, I've got my, I've got my wife on it as well. I'm sort of getting it out to my extended family. Although I don't know if they're, when this podcast is coming out, it's going to be Christmas presents for some. Yeah. Sort of oh family. no. Surprise. Should we wait? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a surprise. We'll wait. We'll wait. So we don't spoil the surprise. Excellent. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I, um, you know, I'm sort of, I'm evangelizing and I've, you know, I was evangelized too. And I think that's how our community continues to grow. And, you know, although, you know, you've mentioned some pretty stunning athletes are, you know, and it's true that, you know, you can, you can you watch some of the Peloton instructors, you see, you know, people in, you know, sports as far reaching as CrossFit, F1, you know, that you see these whoop straps sort of appearing more and more, but really, you know, it's frontline workers, fitness enthusiasts, military personnel. A, a lot of different groups are, are starting to see the see the value and see the benefit. Interesting. Yeah, you almost wonder too if corporations could use it to track employees without being in that privacy space of personal information and you know trying to track their health as well. Yeah, so we're seeing that more and more. Um, you know, we've got actually a few really interesting partnerships um, with large organizations that are using Whoop as a tool to um you know support the wellness of their of their teams i mean I, you know i don't want to talk to how other companies are using it but certainly within whoop you know we 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 like to encourage people to get enough sleep and so we have incentives around you know our sleep scores uh, and so you know it's certainly something that uh, that organizations should and could consider absolutely so when you think about that what are some of the engagement touch points between whoop and then your customer base you know, Uber was about transactions and making solving problems connected to transactions. A Whoop is not a transactional relationship. It's a membership. It's uh, they're part of a community. And because of that, it's really important that our members feel like they are getting value from being a part of that community. So, yes, while the membership services organization, you know, a huge part of what we do is supporting customers through email, phone, troubleshooting, all the normal things you'd expect us to do. Um, I, you know, I really want us to think about how we can evolve that to be positive engagement, proactive uh, engagement, um, you know, more uh, leaning in more to help coach people around the goals, why they came to Whoop, uh, in the first place so that we can add a, you know, we've got incredible sophistication around our technology. Um, I would love to add a human component to that. And I think the, um, the membership services organization is super excited to be able to, to play, um, play a much more positive role for our members rather than just being there for them when things go wrong, which of course we do as well. So how have you navigated now? Like, I know it's probably everyone's sick of hearing it, but with COVID-19 this year, 2020, have you seen an increase in subscriptions and customer engagement or like, what have you seen different? And then what is a different type of engagement 
with your customers compared to what it was previously? And I know you just came in this year, but have you seen a big change? Obviously, every organization in, in some way has been impacted by um, COVID-19. And, and you know, while I think everyone obviously would wish that 2020 had been a more normal year, it has, I think, really served to underline some of the principles behind Whoop, which is that your body can tell you things if you're willing to listen to it. I've had friends that have contracted COVID-19 and they've not felt it. And so, you know, that's always the worry that when you're in that situation, you can unintentionally give it to others who could, you know, sadly become really sick. So, you know, it's really interesting that your body has all these secrets that it's trying to tell you. And a good health monitor can actually help. Um, it can make you understand things about your body that you didn't know. And I think, you know, it's, it's great to be a part of Whoop where they are constantly trying to dive deeper and deeper into coaching members to, to sort of be aware of and improve um, their help. I know that I personally have been incredibly diligent about monitoring my daily recovery scores, my respiratory rate, my resting heart rate, because I know that deviations from the norm, especially now, um, well worth getting checked out. You know, if you start to see something, it's, uh, it's well worth sort of paying attention to those signs. So look, I'd, yeah, to answer your question, um, Stephanie, look, in 2020, our member community has grown um, significantly. Mm -hmm. I think 2021 will continue that trend. Um, so yes, we've, we have been um, impacted by, by, by COVID-19. Yeah. And so when you look at it, it's interesting because, you know, I've tried to buy home exercise equipment and everything's six to 10 weeks out. And then I'm like, well, it's fine. My gym's going to reopen. I wait the gym reopens and it gets closed again. Like, Oh, I should have just pulled the trigger and I should have yeah. just done it because now I'm another six to 10 weeks out. Cause you know, home office equipment and workout equipment at home is just become, you know, somewhat of the norm. Um, but like when you think about that and you look at how you've been impacted and I know you're not a doctor, but is it something, you know, to what you've referenced, is it something where if I'm tracking on the whoop strap, I can kind of have an understanding that maybe there is an underlying illness I'm not aware of? Firstly, you are correct. I am not a doctor. <laughs> I, know, I had to try to put the legalese in so you didn't yeah. feel obligated to. Um, but, but look, the, 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 the whoop strap can like give you uh, data about your body and what's going on in your body. Now, the cause of that could be a number of different things, but you know, as I say, whenever you start to see deviations from the norm, it's it's great to get those checked out by professionals um, because, you know, as I said, like your body's trying to tell you all these different things. Um, and to your point about the new normal, right, I've, I've been really getting into the habit of my exercise bike at home. And I think in a post-COVID world that will continue. Uh, similarly, I think this attentiveness to um our sort of our own biometrics if you like is going to continue like i think people are going to want to continue to understand because although covid19 may have brought them into the web community there's a ton of other benefits to to being a part of that group that i think will keep people um keep people engaged well into the future it's interesting. So my grandmother died of pancreatic cancer, but she survived it for over five years, which they told her prognosis originally was very not, it was not good. But what she always said is you only have your body. 
And so she was pitching softball at 77 years old. You know, she was very, you know, coach collegiate volleyball forever, but it was interesting because she had such a focus on your work. Anything you're doing in the outside world doesn't matter if you don't have your health. And so I think it's fascinating that you think of even in the customer experience space, how much data and analytics we have that we drive our business off of. But yet we as our own selves, the one body we have, we're not paying attention to. So I think it's interesting that you bring that up and talk about how important it is to know your own body and really track that. Because I think we tend to put ourselves last and look at everything else around us first. Absolutely. And, you know, it can you know, when you've got a product that leads with data, like there is so much data that you can you can um, you can capture and communicate. It's really important that we do it in a way that's useful and in a way that's meaningful, and we service out the things that actually you can act on, the, the the stuff that you should be interpreting in a certain way. And I think we do a really good job of that through the product. But I think sort of bringing it back to the membership services organization that I lead, I think that's actually where my team can also help to help people um, navigate the data, to understand the data, um, and to to think about what does that mean for them? Because everyone is unique and individual. Yeah, and kind of going back, so you you were talking about a little bit of a comparison where Uber was a little bit more transactional. So how are you measuring in terms of, I'm sure it's not as focused on like an average handle time. So what's the important measurement when you have your team who's talking to people who are talking about something super specific and more empathy-driven conversations. The the ultimate uh, metric that we we pay attention to is the happiness and engagement of our community, and you know we we measure that by the rate at which our membership base is going. Like I'm also a huge fan of NPS because I think the way that we create uh, advocacy for others to help grow us help us grow the community uh, is super important. So yeah, we tend not obviously we track transactional metrics it's it's important in terms of workforce management that you do that but we don't we don't hold people accountable to them we actually we're focused much more on you know quality metrics outcome based metrics so you know things like nps for us tend to become um very much guiding um guiding lights what kind of opportunities now are you looking at building within your organization now? I mean, in contrast to when you were the first employee building from you running tickets and being the top ticketer, um, yeah. to now having a new organization, but you came into it not right from scratch, right? For the record, I also want to say I am going to be doing some tickets of Whoop. I, I probably won't hit my Uber number, but I do want to I do want to get up there. I think it's important for credibility. Yeah. Um, look, I I think when you when you're sort of when when you're joining an organization that the stage that the whoops in right now, actually it's, it's super exciting because we're sort of pivoting into the next phase of growth where you build a lot of the structures that are likely to endure uh, for several periods. So rather than solving for, you know, weeks and months at a time, actually we can now start to talk in years, which is kind of exciting. Um, and so, you know, it's really important to me that I continue the work, good work that has been done within the team about creating strong support infrastructures, uh, making sure that we are we continue to be on demand for our members, wherever they may be in the world, especially now as we start to push uh, more internationally. But I'd love to build out a lot more of this sort of engagement, proactive, community-based uh, support and touch points, which I think has the ability to create more wow moments with our members rather than thanks 
moments. You know, I, you know, rather than solving problems, I, I want to, I want us, I want our team to be the ones that are really providing the glue that keeps this community tight. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think you should probably start crafting your book on wow moments versus thanks moments because it should probably be, you know, the new methodology in customer experience. I'll send you a copy when it's written. <laughs> hey, I thought I get the forward, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, talking about you know building the team, not just people, but in terms of technology, have you dipped your toe in any like AI's? Everyone, you know, it's the buzz, right? It used to be yep. on the channel. There's all the buzzwords in, in care, right? So, when you look at AI technologies, have you dipped your toe in it, or any innovation strategies you want to share? Yeah, look, we're we're an we're an innovative company. Obviously, we're looking at AI and, and technologies like that. I think I'm a little bit though um, nervous about leaning too much on AI technologies. I think for me, where AI can be incredibly useful is by accelerating um, either resolution or communication with a human. Um, you know, so I think AI technologies around triage are super useful, but really, I, you know, I don't want to be putting people through bot flows. I don't want to, I don't want to have to use my community as a way to train a model. I want our community to be served in the best way possible. Usually right now, given the, the high touch nature of our community, that's people. But if we can use AI technologies to augment that, to get the right members to the right people quicker. I think that's fantastic, but it's, I don't think it's ever going to be something that we lead with. Mm-hmm. Are you doing something in that space where you are uh, triaging people? Like you're using a certain technology to triage people to specific skilled members versus others. If you come in through certain ingress points uh, within our app, you'll go through a, um, a uh, an AI flow where we're learning about, you know, based on the language you're using, based on the experience that you've had, like where best to um, push your contact. But, you know, we're trying to, we, we, I want it to feel like light touch. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want people to feel like, as I say, they're, they're the ones that we're using to train models. And then on that note, so what are your best channels for communication? Like, you know, because it's so personal, because it's high touch, where are you finding the best NPS is coming out of? Is it a specific channel that you're supporting right now? It really does. It depends on the issue. Um, you know, if there's, and this is one of the things that I'm, I'm quite passionate about, you know, making sure that we're, we're matching the right issue to the right channel. Because if something's not time bound, it's not urgent, sometimes email, as, as unfashionable as that may be to say, sometimes email and asynchronous communication is the right way to do it. You know, a lot of our members are super um, comfortable with chats and that sort of that on demand getting chat. Uh, getting having a chat interaction to resolve a problem in a very sort of speedy way. Great, fantastic. Others, it's just about picking up the phone. It's about making that call to the member and say, hey, let's walk through this. You know, let's you know, let's have a conversation human to human. Um, mm-hmm. So it really does depend on the issue that we're trying to solve. Um, I, you know, I, I think I think each channel has a has a role to play. Mm-hmm. Are you doing like a click to call out of the app if someone's in the app and they have a question? Is that kind of how people are enabling? So, so not right now. Not right now. We've we've had we've had calling um, within the app um, through uh, through a phone line. Essentially, we're actually revamping that at the moment, but we're also doing a lot of um, inbound calls, uh, sorry, outbound calls to to members as well. 
Okay. Okay. So you're doing proactive outbound work. And what is usually the trigger to know you should do an outbound, have an outbound conversation? Are they stuck? Are they not using their membership? Or what is it that triggers that usually? So it, it could be, it could be a few different things. Um, you know, if they're coming, if they, if, if we see them bouncing around our support network in a few different ways, we may just take, make the, take the initiative to just give them a call uh, and solve it. If we see from the data that they're having issues uh, using the product, we may send an outbound message. We may, you know, we may put a call into them. Um, it, it really all depends on the, the issue at hand, I guess. Okay. Okay. And then moving into new organization, you know, you came from Uber, went into Whoop all in 2020, right? How has that transition been? Is there any tip? Do you have any tips or tricks for people who are moving from one support organization to another, especially in that build phase? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So it's um, especially when everyone's work from home and, you know, the, the human interaction is, is a lot harder. Changing, changing roles is, um, is interesting. Um, but one of the things that are, I think is, uh, has worked really well for me is I've, first of all, I'm joining a company with an amazing culture. Uh, I think the, everyone at Whoop has been so welcoming um, and supportive of me. Um, but one of the things that I have discovered is that pattern recognition isn't always your friend. Um, you, I, I see a bunch of problems um, that we can solve at Whoop that look and feel similar to problems that I've seen in my last shop. And I, you know, I keep having to check myself about using the same tools, about approaching problems in a similar way, because context is everything. Um, you know, our membership is different. Our team is different. There's, um, there's stuff that I don't know uh, about Whoop. There's stuff that I don't know about the product. There's stuff that I don't know about the community. So, you know, being a little bit humble, making sure you're listening to those around you and, you know, checking your pattern recognition is, uh, is important. Um, but I think it's also useful to come in with a sense of what the vision that you want is um, without being wedded to it. Mm -hmm. being dogmatic about it so yes I you know yes I have a vision for what um, I want my team to be but I want to make sure that's a co-created vision with that team and and that's at all levels within the organization because we are lucky enough that our membership services organization is small enough right now that we can do that in a meaningful way you know when you're a 10,000 person plus organization it's really hard to do um, but, you know, we are we're still small enough that we can actually get voices into the room at all levels with a pretty good frequency. And that's something I'm definitely taking advantage of. Mm -hmm. That's that's great. You know, and I think when I think about what you said, it's really interesting when you look at it and think how you sometimes lose sight of the consumer because as, as you grow, you're further and further from the customer. And yeah. so you taking tickets, I think, is as as simple as that seems, I think it's one of the easiest things people can do, you know, to what you're saying, am I just replicating what I did at another organization to solve a similar problem? But it is something where I think having that either focus groups or talking with people on the front line or taking tickets yourself, I think gets you to check yourself. It's that reality check. Yeah. But then also it's, I think it's interesting when you look at how consumers behave and how, you know, every, everyone throws it out there, but how Amazon has changed that entire model. So Amazon 
created a different level of ex, you know, expectation with the customer where it used to be, if I work with my bank, I want to be treated this way. If I work with Uber, I want to be treated this way with whoop this way. But I do think now with that pattern recognition, there are a lot of problems that are similar that can be solved in similar ways or using similar methodologies because consumers now just expect a certain level with every uh, product or company that they're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm all for continuing to raise the bar on consumer expectations because it gives us interesting problems to solve. Um, you know, it's otherwise the job would become boring. So yeah, keep, keep holding us accountable. I say. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to when we were talking about how you get in customer care and then we all end up here and we're like, what's wrong with us? <laughs> it's, yeah. such a, it's such a, you know, sometimes thankless position when you think about it, but then you hear feedback from a customer that you just change their day, you know, things like that, that keep you going. But it is that every day is different and there's myriad of problems that always have to be solved. And so it's kind of fun. I think we have a lot of fixers or solutioners who are in the space to constantly raise that bar, like you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. So two other quick questions for you. One, um, I heard a fun fact you shared earlier that you have to share with our audience because I think it's fascinating. But do you want to share a little bit about because you've lived all over the globe. So I think that leads also to you know, how, what you're doing from a support structure because you have such a good, you know, worldly culture. But can you talk a little bit about the places that you've lived or your fun facts? <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, my, my party facts, I guess. So I've, I've lived in six of the, the seven continents yeah. in the world, depending on how you define lived. Um, but uh, the, the one that I'm missing is probably not the one you think because um, I got to spend, I got to, to, to live for 45 days in Antarctica um back in gosh 2011 now 2011 into 2012 because obviously summertime down there mm -hmm. um but, but yeah it was a fantastic experience um to be a part of yeah when you brought it up earlier and you said you're a fact and i you know we probably should have recorded it then because i was like oh so antarctica obviously that's the one you're missing yeah. <laughs> and you're like no, <laughs> it's no just... i still i still haven't lived in south america so i'm 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 really on the lookout, you know, uh, in, in, in the longer term for opportunities to, to live and work down in South America. Yeah. My Portuguese or Spanish will need a little bit of dusting off, but, uh, but I would be excited to give it a go. Well, that's where you have like Duolingo or, you know, something that you can start practicing so you're ready to <laughs> <Absolutely>. go. <laughs> Is there a country you're eyeing down in South America? Oh, there's like, there's so many wonderful countries down there. Like I've, I've had great experiences down in Brazil um, in the mm -hmm. past. I would, I would happily go back there I, uh, I spent I spent quite a bit of time in uh, Chile especially before I was heading down to Antarctica we we spent quite a bit of time in in Chile before while we were preparing and I think that's an amazing country um, mm. but uh, but yeah I'm I'm I consider myself a, a very global uh, citizen so I'm open to opportunity wherever that may be now imagine if you had the whoop strap when you were in Antarctica that would have been fascinating it right. would have been hugely fascinating we were Apparently, we were burning, um, you know, uh, six, seven thousand calories a day, you know, marching because we were doing the expedition coast to pole. Um, and so, yeah, I would have loved to have seen my strain data uh, while I was down in Antarctica. But um, uh, maybe it's an excuse to go back sometime. With the Spend another 45 days because it does it also measure oxygen levels, everything like that from a, is that what it goes into strain? Uh, so strain is about ca cardiovascular. Um, mm -hmm. exertion so essentially how hard you're working your um your, your your cardio system and i can assure you it was getting worked really hard 
Yeah. Um, and so when we did get to have a rest day, it was spent pretty much horizontally. I can't imagine. I grew up in North Dakota. And so we're used to negative 40 Fahrenheit, which is also Celsius. Yes, that's right. Across, yes. <laughs> across you know, 30 consecutive, 60 consecutive days. But that's nothing like, you know, the Antarctic experience. Plus, we don't have any cute little penguins or anything walking around. So they're, they're, and unfortunately, we didn't get to see too many cute little penguins either because they're all at the coast. So okay. once you start getting in, like you don't get to see the you don't get to see the fun stuff. But uh, it yeah. was an amazing experience. So, but we have to check out the YouTube Polar Vision. You said right? Yeah, there's a video. There's a video on there, Polar Vision on YouTube. Okay. Now I just threw out, you know, threw it out there. Thanks PS for the plug. <laughs> a little pluggy for everyone. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm um, really grateful for the opportunity to chat. It's uh, it's been a, it's been a fun conversation. Yeah. No. Thank you. I hope you know more people can learn about Whoop check it out. I definitely, I'm going to have to have this come out after Christmas too, because I'm getting it from our CEO and founder. They are crazy about their bodies and in a good way. They're very healthy, very fit, but they're really focused on all their metrics and they love data and tech. So um, when I first talked to you, it was like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to get those two for Christmas. Um, so uh, hopefully that's something then they'll get really familiar with. And, you know, you're just continuing to spread something that's not just a product that yeah. people can buy, but it's something that really makes an impact on you. Excellent. Well, glad to hear you're a fan as well, Stephanie. Special thanks to Dickie Smith from Whoop for his valuable insights. ERCX Chats is a production of ERC, a global leader in customer experience. Please join us again soon for the next installment of ERCX Chats.